For a nation that sprang from puritanical beginnings, America moved quickly to one that glorified the rough-and-tumble hard drinking of the Old West. We moved into the 20th century, and Americans' fascination turned to the glitz and glamour of Hollywood movie stars, with a drink in one hand and cigarette in the other. We followed their lead, and culture shifted. Adding automobiles to the mix brought a need for laws to curb some of our sins. But limiting civil rights in a country founded on freedom has not been an easy road. Neither are roads filled with impaired drivers, however, and we haven't figured it out even still. We forgive or dismiss celebrities and singers, even shamelessly singing along to their songs that condone drinking irresponsibly, even many of us who don't. We almost expect it if our elected officials get caught driving under the influence. I lost count during my research of the politicians at all levels of government in recent years who have been involved in DUI crashes, some of which involve serious injuries or deaths. And what do Americans do on their 21st birthday? You go out and get wasted. And most of us, we don't even bat an eye. It's a rite of passage for literally millions of 21-year-olds in this country. I bet a lot of you probably just stopped and waxed nostalgic about your own 21st birthday festivities. Hopefully, driving was not involved. A study published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, done by researchers at the University of Missouri, found that 80% of respondents consumed alcohol on their 21st birthday, and 34% of men and 24% of women said they drank 21 drinks or more. Crazy, right? There's more. Nearly half of male respondents and more than a third of female respondents had a blood alcohol concentration of 0.26 or higher. The study's lead author, Dr. Patricia C. Rutledge, said the study was empirical evidence that 21st birthday drinking is a pervasive custom in which binge drinking is the norm. A custom that she said can lead to alcohol poisoning, coma, and death. And some kids start drinking even younger. Friends don't let friends drive drunk is a nice maxim. But the truth is, few folks are willing to stand up to the peer pressure and actually keep the keys or call a cab for their impaired pals. So why is this something we, as a society, don't really fight against until it's literally a personal issue? Why don't we treat impaired driving the same as an armed and dangerous person? Really, stop and ponder that for a second. What makes an impaired driver behind the steering wheel of a car, a semi-truck, a boat? What makes that driver less dangerous to the rest of us than an angry or homicidal person with a gun or a knife? Let's take a deep dive into America's history with alcohol what it means to be legally impaired, and how we break this cycle of acceptance and reduce drunk driving deaths. Deadly crash that turned a Sebring family's lives upside down. Happened last night on South Highlands Avenue in North Carolina. A long way to the crash night in killing two people, including a four-year-old.
are listening to episode four of Telling Lives, season two, Alcohol, Intoxicants, Accidents in America. I'm your host, Elizabeth Clark. Vodka light ads scream from sky-high billboards, 100 calories. Skinny girl wine advertised as if it's a health food. Just last month, Esquire magazine ran a story, The Least Fattening Ways to Get Drunk, with an ever-svelte Daniel Craig and his quintessential James Bond's shaken, not-stirred martini. Apparently, they're banking on folks continuing to have their cake and eat it, too. And boy, are we trying. The list of lower alcohol content options grows by the day. But does that translate into a less intoxicated America? Several studies I looked at, including one from the National Institutes of Health, suggest that the average American drinker consumes about 400 calories a day from alcohol, and some alcoholics regularly ingest half their calories a day from intoxicating beverages. Historically, we've done a 180. It just takes more drinking to get the same caloric intake. The fermentation of fruits and grains prior to refrigeration served not only to preserve food resources, but increased the caloric content and allowed for better self-preservation from harsh winters and rougher terrain for pioneers who had to hunt and work to find food. The increased caloric content of alcohol was actually a benefit for our ancestors. This comes from the book Drunk by Edward Slingerland. Alcohol made up a third to a half of a day's caloric content in some cultures, and unfortunately, though no longer out of necessity, it can for some alcoholics even today. Fermentation also served as a natural disinfectant. Alcohol kills bacteria. We all know this from television and movies, where we've seen a would-be hero in an unexpected crisis use liquor of some sort to pour on wounds in a pinch when no antiseptic was available. The process of fermenting alcohol also serves to disinfect non-potable water into something drinkable. Of course, as many things about the human condition, we take a good thing and spoil it. You know the old saying, too much of a good thing? Well, it's been around since Shakespeare's time, and I bet it started with alcohol. So let's get to modern times. When did America first recognize that too much of this good thing for our ancestors was actually dangerous, deadly even, when combined with driving? Two of the earliest American laws against driving a vehicle after imbibing alcohol were passed in New Jersey in 1906 and New York in 1910. New Jersey law allowed for a $500 fine and up to two months in county lockup. New York set the fine at $1,000 and up to a year in jail. Soon, many states followed suit. The problem with these earliest laws was that no one qualified what drunk driving actually meant. It wasn't until the 1930s, following research by the American Medical Association, that a .15 BAC level was set for the prosecution of drunk driving. While that's nearly twice today's legal level, it was a first step in the right direction. Unfortunately, most of those prosecuted in those early days were easily acquitted as there was no technology to provide scientific proof of their guilt. Following a brief failed experiment with prohibition in the 1920s, alcohol quickly became more woven into the American way of life than ever. 
mass market magazines and newspapers ran advertising promoting alcohol as part of a healthy lifestyle. According to an article by Baron Lerner, a pamphlet published in 1937 called Beer in the American Home referred to beer as liquid food and the more you drank the better. In other words, you can't have too much of a good thing. In 1936, Dr. Rola Harger, a biochemist, patented the drunkometer, a device that when people breathed into it would determine if they were drunk by the standards of the day. And less than 20 years later, in 1953, a former Indiana State police captain turned professor who had worked with Harger invented the breathalyzer, which was more scientifically precise about the level of alcohol content in a person's blood. By mid-century, Americans were moving away from the cities where they could have drinks after work and then grab public transportation or walk home. The suburbs brought about far more drinking and driving as folks were now driving home from the local bar or restaurant after imbibing. In the late 1950s, Harvard-educated epidemiologist William Haddon Jr. began studying the incidences of drunk driving in America. His study resulted in the 1968 Alcohol and Highway Safety Report. He found that alcohol abuse caused 800,000 vehicular crashes and an estimated 25,000 deaths annually. Drinking and driving, he discovered, had quite literally become a serious public health crisis and no one was paying attention. Still, it would be decades before the American public consciousness was collectively awakened to the horrors of drunk driving, due in large part to mass media and the advent of cable television. Now folks weren't just privy to the loss of lives in their own little communities. They could hear mother's stories and see crashes involving children all across America. I won't go into how transportation, speed limits, and the interstate highway system also played into this. We could be here for days. Suffice to say, by 1980, when Candy Leitner's 13-year-old daughter Carrie was killed walking along a rural road on her way to a church carnival in Fair Oaks, California, by repeat DUI offender Clarence Bush, Leitner made America listen. This wasn't the first time Candy and her children had been injured by an impaired driver. When Carrie and her twin sister Serena were just 18 months old, Serena was in the car with her mom when a drunken driver rear-ended their car and hurt the baby girl. Just six years later, a drugged driver would run over her son, four-year-old Travis, breaking many of his bones and causing him to have permanent brain damage. The driver was on tranquilizers and had no driver's license, yet she was not even given a traffic citation. By the time Carrie was killed, Candy truly couldn't take any more. Mothers Against Drunk Driving was born out of her grief. Carrie was killed by a man with three previous DUI convictions who still had a valid driver's license. He was out on bail from a hit and run from just a couple of days earlier when he struck the girl. His BAC was .20. Sounds a lot like Shelley Rose, doesn't it? Sadly, the laws are only as good as their enforcement, even today.
And today, there are thousands of chapters of MAD across the country, championing causes in every corner of every state. We are all indebted to the work of Leitner and those who have worked and volunteered, done research, and testified before hearings to bring about hundreds of pieces of legislation to keep all of us safer. To name just two of the most significant and life-saving policy changes that have come as a result of MAD and Leitner's all-consuming fight to save the lives of American children so other parents did not suffer her own fate. The raising of the legal drinking age from 18 to 21 in 1984 has saved untold lives. Data has shown that a disproportionate number of crashes were caused by young, inexperienced, intoxicated drivers. And in just one year, from 1984 to 1985, drunk driving deaths dropped from 25,000 to 17,000. MAD also led the charge to lower the legal BAC from a high of 0.15 to 0.10, and then to 0.08. In 1992, the National Highway Safety Administration published a report for Congress that recommended the national standard for impaired driving be set at 0.08. This was passed into law by Congress in 2000. States that didn't adopt the standard were told that they would face major cuts to federal highway dollars, and so all got on board. In the years since, several studies have been done, and they all show between a 7 and 10% drop in alcohol-related deaths with the lowering of the BAC to 0.08. Of course, now, with the increasing legality of marijuana, it's likely we will see an increase in impaired driving from that. Another interesting thing to note, that even though 0.08 has definitely been a step in the right direction, it's still a far cry from the blood alcohol concentration levels set by other industrialized countries to limit alcohol-related driving deaths. France, Germany, Italy, and Australia have a 0.05, and Japan has a 0.03. The NTSB has recommended that the U.S. lower theirs to 0.05, but the law enforcement officers I spoke with were actually not in favor of that. I'll discuss more on that in a later episode. To be honest, though, there is no safe BAC level. Any alcohol in your system can impair you. In 2019, for instance, there were 1,775 people killed in alcohol-related crashes in which the driver had a BAC of 0.01 to 0.07, not legally impaired, but impaired enough to have life-ending consequences. Much of this data comes from the National Highway and Transportation Safety Administration's website. They have a wealth of information available to anyone interested in this. So what does all this mean? If you're like me, you may not understand the science in all of this. I'm going to try to explain in layman's terms what all these 0.05, 0.08 terms mean, how much alcohol that is, or how an average person is impaired at that level. Of course, average person is quite subjective and is affected by other things like the amount of person typically drinks, medications they may be taken, or if they've eaten 
prior to consuming alcohol. I'm about to throw a lot of data at you, but if you hear one thing, hear this. If you are in a position to ask yourself if you have had too much to drink and drive, listen to that voice and don't drive. Always err on the side of safety. One study I looked at showed that at .08, right at the legal BAC limit, a person has a decreased reaction time of 120 milliseconds, or about one-tenth of one second. No time at all, right? Well, a drunk driver traveling 70 miles per hour would go 12 additional feet before stopping. That 12 feet could be straight into the back of a semi-truck, or worse, straight into a family out for an afternoon walk with their baby in a stroller. That one-tenth of a second is an eternity. First, the standard definition of an alcoholic drink. This is 12 ounces of beer at approximately 5% alcohol content, 5 ounces of an alcohol or wine that is approximately 12% alcohol content, or just an ounce and a half of hard liquor, 80 proof or about 40% alcohol, things like whiskey, vodka, gin, and the like. The Centers for Disease Control says that just two alcoholic drinks can bring impairment to an average 160-pound person. Those weighing less would have impairment even sooner. What does that look like? At just 0.02, which is a single shot of tequila or a glass of wine or a beer or possibly two, a person has some loss of judgment, is more relaxed, their body warms up, and their mood is altered. This is why some people crave a beer in front of TV or a glass of wine with a book at night after work. Because it does these things. And I'm not making a judgment on what people do legally in their own homes that doesn't affect anyone else. However, even after just that initial drink or two, if you were to drive, you would have a decline in your visual function and your ability to multitask. And consider how much multitasking many of us do behind the wheel of a car these days. After about three drinks, a person reaches the .05 level that I said most developed countries and one state, Utah, use as their legal threshold. Here, a person's behavior is beginning to be noticeably altered, with some loss of small muscle control, like being able to get your eyes to focus. Judgment will be impaired, and they're feeling good and their inhibitions have loosened. That sounds harmless enough, again, if you're safe at home. But clearly, anyone can understand how important focus and coordination are to driving and potential road hazards, but also to simple tasks like steering and tracking other moving objects. At four drinks, that average person is in the .08 legally impaired range. This is when all muscle coordination is off, speech, vision, hearing, balance, reaction time, everything. Judgment and self-control are going out the window. Memory is being affected also. A person cannot process information with any of the senses needed to drive safely. And the effects just increase with each drink to where the driver can't stay in their lane, can't stop on time, and may be vomiting or nodding off. One thing all of this should tell us 
is that for each increase in BAC level, a person's reaction time decreases. This reminds me of Newton's third law of motion from high school science. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. For every drink you ingest, you will have a decrease in focus, concentration, and reaction. Sadly, many of the crashes that we're talking about this season happen at three times the legal limit. I can't imagine being able to drink enough to reach a BAC of 0.24 or higher, but many long-time abusers of alcohol don't show the effects as early as the average person either. Also, the medications a person takes can have serious interactions with alcohol. Read the labels. I take two different medications daily that have warning labels about alcohol consumption increasing the effects. Ignoring information like this sometimes has deadly consequences. In any given year, roughly a million people in the United States are arrested for driving under the influence. That number is staggering to me, but not nearly so considering more than 110 million people report that they've driven while intoxicated, according to a report by CNN. Let me repeat, more than 110 million people in America report that they have driven while intoxicated at least once in the past year. American Addiction Centers conducted a survey to find out how ride-sharing services, which are now easily available to nearly all Americans, have impacted drinkers' choices of getting home. They asked participants if they have gotten behind the wheel after drinking in the last month and found that a quarter of the respondents said yes, and 2% said they've driven after drinking more than six times. Add to that, more than half the respondents said they feel totally in control to drive after drinking, and this was the main reason given by 30% of respondents as to why they do it not because alternative transportation wasn't available, but because they think they're fine. The second highest response was that they didn't have very far to drive. Only 4% of respondents said that they didn't have alternative means of travel, and 2% said they just didn't want to wait on a rideshare. It's also interesting that of those who drink and drive, more than 90% have passengers with them, and nearly half of the respondents said that they had been passengers in the car with a drunk driver. Reasons given by 80% of respondents, it's a friend, and I think they're fine, and we don't have far to go. While most respondents said they don't feel comfortable after four drinks, nearly a quarter of men and 12% of women admit that they have driven blackout drunk. Perhaps the scariest statistic of all, Studies show that only about 1% of legally impaired drivers are stopped by law enforcement. That means there are a lot of drunk drivers sharing our roads every hour of every day. No matter how safe the rest of us are, we must always be aware of the dangers that others may present. At the end of the day, young folks think they're invincible, no matter the generation, and prayerfully, they pay attention to all the information available to them today as to the cost, physical, emotional, and financial, of a DUI. I do believe alcoholism is a disease, 
whether genetic or environmental, I don't know. I just can't wrap my head around people being so egocentric as to have so little care for others that they would purposely choose such careless actions over and over and over again. It just doesn't square with rational sensibilities of right and wrong. Take, for instance, a Laramie County, Wyoming school bus driver was driving the high school debate team to a competition in South Dakota. A student on the bus called his mother about his concerns. Thankfully, she quickly called police, who pulled the driver over. The driver's BAC was .158, twice the legal limit, and he had two bottles of vodka in his possession, one opened and one unopened. A rational person would not do this, and there's so many more. In South Dakota, 60-year-old Robert Groth was convicted of his 16th DUI in 2012. His BAC was .247 when he crashed into a parked car outside of a casino in Rapid City. He had a 35-year history of DUI arrests and convictions. He received only two years in prison. South Dakota actually has more than its share of multiple DUI offenders. Jerry Zeller, nicknamed Mr. DUI, racked up more than 30 DUI arrests before his untimely death after he fell asleep while smoking, most likely due to intoxication. A Virginia man received a seven-year sentence following his 25th DUI for a BAC level of .28 while driving with his two children who were unrestrained in the car. And it's not just men. A Montana woman received her 8th DUI, a felony charge. Her DUIs date back to 1986. And we all know someone, right? Just Google and you will see dozens and dozens and dozens of stories of folks arrested for five, six, nine, a dozen DUIs. I had no idea this was so prevalent until I started this research. I naively believed that after two or three, a person had their license revoked and they were no longer driving. But, like stricter gun control, short of locking people up, stricter laws about suspension of driver's licenses, only works for law-abiding citizens. And, well, this issue requires all of us, especially those of us who don't drink or don't drink to excess, to share the burden rather than simply judging offenders and saying we aren't the problem. We must advocate for stricter penalties instead of protecting the offender, even when it's someone we love. That doesn't make it go away, and it doesn't keep you or your family safe. We all have a job to do. But what about when your job to do actually involves alcohol? I got to talk into a cashier at a convenience store in my hometown the other day when I saw an entire display case installed filled with kratom an herbal substance that produces opioid-like effects. Many countries of the world have already banned this addictive substance, and six states in America already have. Bills to ban it are before several more state legislatures in America right now. Many people buy into the advertisements for Kratom that it's a safe and herbal substitute for opioids. It's not. And Kratom and alcohol are a deadly duo of depressants, especially behind the steering wheel. I've seen firsthand just how dangerous it can be and can be a gateway or substitute for even more deadly substances. But I digress. 
I struck up a conversation with the cashier about the enormous amount of Kratom for sale there. She actually told me that she's a recovering addict, less than one year sober, and she is surrounded by temptation all day, every day she is working. Lord help her. I encouraged her to keep making the decision to fight that demon every day, and I pray that she will. Like that young woman, many have jobs that are directly related to alcohol consumption. I spoke to a former bartender from Louisiana and a nationally renowned chef and restaurateur from Mississippi about their experiences and their responsibilities. Curtis Orr worked for about six years as a bartender in different types of establishments in the state of Louisiana, the most perplexing of which, the drive through liquor store. We were serving alcohol to people in their vehicles. Say, for instance, uh, in most states, you have to go to one place for liquor and then a whole other place for, for beer. And in Louisiana, you can just go to one particular place and even just go through as a drive through You order a six-pack of beer, a bottle of liquor, and a cup of alcohol while you're in your, while you're in your vehicle driving you could be in your driver's seat you can be in your passenger seat you could have a car full of people you could it doesn't matter what it is and yes if you're listening and thinking some of their patrons are no doubt already intoxicated upon arrival you'd be right curtis told me he has had some customers so impaired they can't even make it through the drive-through i did have one i did have one person i, I had to cut off because he almost took out our, our, our liquor shelf. He comes through in this normal white truck with uh, LSU mirrors on the side. You know who he is as soon as he drives up, you know what he wants as soon as he drives up. He's a regular. And he, just one of your stereotypical, uh, you can call him an alcoholic because he'd come in every day, all the time. Uh, he'd be blasted out of his mind sometimes. Oh yeah. And those are the times that we'd, we'd uh, Try to, str- try to stray away from serving them, and there was only one time in particular that he would uh, be worse than, than you would ever hope for him to be, which is um, he was coming around the corner and almost took out our, our liquor shelf, and he just slurring his words and being all kinds of sideways with us and everything like that. And whenever I told him, I was like, look, Mr. Donnie, I'm sorry. I know you come in here all the time. I know we serve you with all kinds of uh, any situation really. But today I don't, I don't feel comfortable serving you because you almost took out our liquor shelf. Like you, you're slurring the words real bad. And then once I told him that I wouldn't serve it, I'm gonna cut him off. He went irate, F this, F that, F you. Um, I come to this place too much. I spend too much money here. And I'm just like, well, if I give you this now, you may not be able to spend more money here. So I, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. And some days you get people that understand. Some days you get people like did him that don't leave? understand. Did you call the police? No, I didn't have to call the police. He he stormed off. He went and bought from somewhere else. He was already behind the wheel of his car. He never got out or anything like that. He came. This was uh, at Jack's so Jr. on Jackson Street. Drove away intoxicated. There's nothing nothing really I can do. I can't hold him there. And honestly, he's right. Bartenders aren't cops, and in drive through bars, once you say no, short of going out and standing in front of a running vehicle, what's a bartender to do? It's truly absurd to me. But welcome to Louisiana, the land of the absurd. I started serving alcohol at 18. 
before I even could drink alcohol. And uh, it, it's at that age, you're more trying to get the feel of what you're doing first before you can even figure out how to how or when to stop serving somebody. And Louisiana is not alone. According to my research, there are 17 states that have no restrictions on 18-year-olds serving or selling any kind of libations. And like Louisiana, a handful of those also include drive through establishments. Of course, most of those only sell sealed, closed containers out the window. And by law, that's what Louisiana claims to be doing as well. To be fair... Not just any 18-year-old can sell alcohol. Any bartender must apply for a state bar card and parish license. Parishes are what counties are called in Louisiana. This requires a four-hour class and passing a 45-minute quiz in order to be certified to sell and serve, and recertification is required every five years. So there were some things up in the air where, oh, legally you have to have a piece of tape over it or something like that. That, that. that was never true. The the thing was in the lid, you know how if you put your straw through a lid, the little little creases make little white creases and everything mm-hmm. like that. You can always tell whenever a straw goes in that cup. It's not, the, the tape is just there to cover the, the bars uh, hiding. I mean, you can't, it's, it's just there to make sure that we're putting out unopened containers. It's up to the person once it's in their hands to do whatever they want with it yeah as long as the straw is not out of the paper and the straw is just like that but we all know this is a game because we fill up our own fountain cups and put lids on them all the time exactly we can take them off exactly and see if it's too tall that's right so this is a game yep i asked him if he had any qualms with knowing he has served people who very likely could have driven off and injured or killed someone or if he knew of any who actually had in the bartending business, um, you you serve so many people in such quick succession that you don't get to have that that feeling of when it's time to cut somebody off, and it's such a such a quick thing. You're trying to get people in and out and in and out. You don't have the time to feel bad for serving these people in that time. It's not till afterward when you find out something happened after that that you really feel bad. Okay, so I had this coworker once where I wasn't on the clock, but she told me the story. And she said that she was going to serve this guest that was very clearly just too much. And in that moment, you you have to make a gut call on whether or not to serve this person or not, whether, whether you feel it... Uh, better or worse to serve them now and have them getting mad and irate now and or there's multiple aspects to that anyway she didn't serve this guest because they had too much and sure enough they made it out into the highway and went to make a u-turn in the median and pulled out in front of another vehicle killed the child in the vehicle curtis did tell me that bartenders do have the power to refuse to serve anyone it's totally in their discretion and they can call the police if a patron becomes belligerent. However, that doesn't make for good business practices, and the employees know it, even if it's not explicitly stated. And so, when it's a regular, especially 
no cops are called. But you normally don't really call the cops on them because you want them to come back. You want them to spend more money. And that's the problem. And that, that's a big issue with that. Uh, these like, people, the... they don't get the repercut. They don't get the consequences to their actions if uh, they just get to go home and come back and do it again. And it's kind of a catch-22 right there because you generally don't want to call the police on your guests that are tipping you pretty well, too. Still, he said his co-worker had a really hard time moving on, knowing that while she hadn't served him the final drink before his fatal drive, she knew that she had served him hours earlier. She beat herself up because of the first time. We'd, we'd consistently have to tell her this is... It's just what we do. We serve these people drinks. It's not our fault what they do whenever they leave here. We serve it to them unopened uh, with the intention of them to bring it home, sit on their couch after a long day of work, and just have a, have a good night, have a good evening. But so many people don't do that. As soon as they get it into their vehicle, that straw goes in that cup, and there's nothing we can do about that. Well, maybe not in certain types of establishments. Maybe it is up to the owner to set the standard of the way he or she expects bartenders to behave with belligerent customers. I've never worked in a restaurant or in the bartending industry, and I'm not a drinker. I do remember a handful of times when I was a teenager working in grocery stores, refusing to sell alcohol to customers who handed me what I believed to be a fake ID. And some of those times, I did get the side eye from my manager on duty. I always stood my ground, and usually the manager overrode me and rang them up anyway, but I wasn't doing it. I know everyone isn't as stubborn and obstinate as I can be, but I wasn't backing down in front of punk kids, even if my manager told me to sell it. I always made him do it. A lot of those kids pop open those beers before they even crank the cars, and I wasn't going to be a party to it. But that was the 1980s and 90s, and I'm quite certain fake IDs are much more sophisticated, thanks to technology. One of those kids who was drinking before his time was Robert St. John, whose name and restaurants many of you listening are familiar with. He told me he was one of those wayward teens back in the 1980s in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Today, he is a nationally renowned restaurateur, chef, and writer, and he is also a recovering alcoholic. Uh, when I was about 14 years old, had my first beer. Um, really felt like I had discovered something that opened kind of a, a new world. I think probably right off the bat, even at 14, I probably drank alcoholically. Um, I didn't drink normally. I mean, it wasn't just like having a beer or two. I drank to get drunk. By the time he was 19, he said drinking started having more serious consequences. And the drinking... You know, I kind of had the world by the tail for a little while, and then the drinking, uh, really, I started having a lot of consequences. Losing jobs, getting fired from jobs, um, you know, lying, cheating, stealing, all that kind of thing. And uh, I didn't really have the world by the tail anymore. I started blacking out almost every time I drank, late at night. And so um, I ended up in a place, uh, I was in, living in some just ratty, trailer park and got evicted from it and pretty much would have been living uh, under a bridge if it weren't for a, for a loving grandmother who took me in. St. John said he doesn't have a clue just how many times he had driven drunk because he was always just told by the law enforcement officer 
on the rare occasion that he was pulled over, to be careful driving home. The late 1970s and early 1980s were a different era in America. We really didn't treat drunk driving as a crime at all. And that had happened a lot to me. I had been pulled over a lot and, and had never gotten in any trouble or anything yeah. and probably been pretty loaded when I got pulled over. But this night, May 25th, 1983, I was headed home. It was probably 2 in the morning. I was, I was driving too fast. Where were you? Um, in Hattiesburg, uh, between 7th Street and 4th Street. I know exactly where it was. Um, and I was uh, driving, and I passed a police car, and something clicked in me. I mean, it's, it's weird for me to sit here as a 60-year-old and talk about 21-year-old me because it's a totally different person that I'm talking about. But something clicked in my head, and I just said, I'm going to run. I'm going to get away. And so I started driving. I was driving about 90 miles an hour with my lights off, I learned pretty quickly, you can run from the police, you can't run from the radios. So within 30 seconds, I had three police cars behind me. I'm, I'm driving down for a residential neighborhood, two in the morning, I mean, there could have been people out on the sidewalks, it could have been, I mean, very, very dangerous. Uh, you know, for me certainly, but for, for anybody else who may have been out, luckily there was no one out. He could see the blue lights in his rearview mirror, so he pulled into a dark parking lot crouched way down in his front seat and tried to hide. Totally forgetting to turn off the engine, Robert had his foot on the brake and the bright red brake lights led cops right to him and led Robert right to the Hattiesburg jail. Remember earlier what I said about the loss of judgment? His actions sound silly to our sober minds, but in that moment, they made sense to Robert, kind of like running from the cops in the first place. St. John said he was offered his one phone call. I, got, I called my mother, who uh, had been for a, a few years expecting that phone call. She knew she was going to get one of three calls. It was either going to be the hospital, the jail, or the morgue. And, and luckily for me and, and anybody else who may have been out that night, it was from the jail. And uh, I said, you know, I got a DUI. His mom had been attending Al-Anon meetings for a while. As most of you probably know, Al-Anon is part of the Alcoholics Anonymous organization and offers anonymous support groups for family members of alcoholics. Many of its members attend, even when their family members are still in denial about their own detrimental lifestyles. And um, she said, all right, we can do, she was ready for this call. And she said, all right, we can do one or two things. She said, we can sell your car and pay this DUI off, or you can go to rehab. And I said, I didn't even miss a beat. I said, sell my car. You know, I didn't, uh, I had no desire to stop drinking at the time, even though uh, pretty much that was the cause of root of all my problems at that point. Rehab was still relatively uncommon back then. But fortunately for Robert, he couldn't get enough money for his car to pay his fines and off to rehab he went. It was one of the worst things that had ever happened to me at that point, if not the worst, other than my dad dying when I was six. But in retrospect, one of the absolute best things that ever happened to me, period. Because uh, I have not had a drink or a drug since May 25th, 1980, since that night. I didn't really want to stop drinking, but I thought, well, this will get me out of trouble. And I'll, you know, I'll kind of lay low for a bit and then I'll come down, I'll come back out and I'll party a little bit. I'll just kind of, you know, keep it 
quiet. And uh, so I did nine weeks in a rehab center in Jackson, Mississippi. And then they sent me to a halfway house in Omaha, Nebraska. They gave me a one-way ticket, put me on a plane, sent me to Omaha. I wish somebody in that halfway house would have said, Robert, sit down and dream what your best life can be. Dream big. Just sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and write down what you could imagine your best life could be. Because I would love to have that sheet of paper right, right. now. Because I would have so undershot what life has, has given me. I'm not talking about material things and monetary things at all. I'm talking about more spiritual things and relational things and how good life has been without all the stress. Today, Robert looks back and realizes his DUI being held accountable by the police that night for the first time saved his life. You know, I had resigned myself at 21 that I wasn't going to live to be 30, and I was okay with it. And truth is, I probably wouldn't have made 25 the way I was going. Um, so this is what I'll tell you. There have been three or four things in my life that seemed like the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to me happened. Getting a DUI was one of them. But in retrospect, and really just a few months later, it became obvious this is one of the absolute best things. It was a gift to me. I tried to, about, I got, I've been sober 39 years now, and probably at about 10 or 15 years, it struck me, you know, I need to find the records. I want to find these police officers. I had owned restaurants by this time. You know, I want, I want to find those police officers and, and thank them for, for, for doing that that night, for doing their job, for, for getting me off of the road. And I wanted to buy them lunch and just sit down and, and we, I can't find, I don't know who they were. The, I had a friend in the police department was searching for the records. They couldn't find the records or the arrest records that night or whatever, because I owe them a huge debt of gratitude. Um, it, you know, it really it just changed my life. So. Robert had started college and work in the restaurant business as a teenager before his drinking had taken over his life and he partied it away. Even though at 19, he had already fallen in love with the restaurant business. But um, eventually after I got sober, I, uh, I came back and I went back to school, got a degree in hospitality management, and um, opened the restaurant uh, December 28th, 1987. Wow. That's I'm when I opened the first one. Today, well, just Google the name Robert St. John if you aren't from Mississippi. Mississippians have the pleasure of feeling like we all know the guy. Even those of us who've just been regular diners at his establishments in the Pine Belt for many years, and more recently in the Jackson, Mississippi area. For you guys too far to dine, he's written some amazing cookbooks that share more than just his recipes. But I have to tell you, Besides the stuffed mushrooms and the eggplant Orleans at Crescent City Grill in Hattiesburg, my favorite thing Robert St. John has shared with the world are his weekly columns. In fact, it was one of his columns about his sobriety and his outreach that made me contact him for this podcast. And I encourage each of you to check out these on his website at robertstjohn.com, robertstjohn.com. You will thank me later. And also, it's worth the drive for the eggplant and mushrooms at Crescent City, I promise. Even though many decades have passed, 
St. John doesn't let his guard down for a minute to let his demons have their way with them. He still regularly attends meetings, although he was never anonymous in his struggles, he says with a smile. And, and I'm, I'm a member of, have been member of a recovery group for a long time. And um, there are people, there are two different schools of thought. There are people who feel like they were born an alcoholic, and there are people who feel like they became an alcoholic. I really, it doesn't matter to me either one. I am alcoholic. I know that. And I'll tell you this. So I'm in 12-step recovery program for a long time. And I, and I go, to, go to meetings as often as I can, sometimes every day. Um, and, and part of, of that whole program is uh, that to keep it, you got to give it away. And, uh, you know, anytime somebody reaches out for help. And so I've always been very public about, I haven't been anonymous about my, me not drinking. I, I, uh, I respect everybody else's anonymity and, and how that works. But with myself, you know, it just worked. Actually, I didn't have a choice. When I ended up in that treatment center, my mom was so glad something was happening. She told everybody. So I was getting, I was getting letters from all these little, little ladies in Hattiesburg and stuff. After he hit the 10-year mark, he said he got more comfortable talking about it. And then, after a friend lost his son to addiction, Robert said he started sharing his story even more because he thought if his story and recovery could help save someone, it was worth the time. He now gives his cell phone number out regularly to people who are hurting. You know, I try to be humble in my you know, sobriety because 39 years is a long time. And you wouldn't believe the calls I get. I mean, it's just people from out of the blue just call, man, I'm having a problem. You know, I appreciate, I read your story. I appreciate you sharing. And so, you know, that's why I do it. I mean, if it's going to, you know, I'm lucky. I mean, I'm really, really like, I, I was in so many different situations where I really shouldn't be. I had an angel on my shoulders, no doubt about it, that God was watching over me. And in so many situations, that night, that certainly that night, but so many other nights. At first glance, St. John's sobriety in a business making a lot of money on alcohol sales seems at odds. So, of course, I had to know how he aligned those two sides of himself. St. John owns seven restaurants, three bars, a theater, and a bowling alley that all serve alcohol. He makes no judgment of the people who can drink legally and responsibly, but he started his establishments with a clear understanding that anyone appearing impaired would immediately be cut off. Well, I don't want to own a place, you know, that where people are going to fight or, you know, people get too sloppy drunk and all that. Just, even if it's against what I believe, which is, you know, over-serving people to try to make a buck. You know, I don't need money that bad to try to sell an extra drink to somebody. So it's just better to, and and so the the benefit of that is that people end up knowing, you know, I really, you know, it's not a place we can really go get trashed in. Mm-hmm. We can have a glass of wine or two and some food, and you know, a beer or two and some and some food, and and so we really we don't even have to deal with it much anymore. Maybe in the early days, you know, back in the early nineties or something, before people really knew kind of what we do but we we don't mind cutting somebody off in a second if they want to you know never come back then you know what that's that's their deal it's that's not the kind of customer we want anyways 
Fast forward about 30 years and 60 miles from Robert St. John's youthful drinking. Red Williams of Goldport, Mississippi, also got stopped by police early on in his drinking career. Rhett told me about the first time he bought alcohol legally, a day or two after his 21st birthday. Thankfully, this night, he was not driving. So, I believe what I bought was a Bacardi 151, which is 75.5% alcohol, and a smaller bottle of Everclear. I got the highest, you know, grain alcohol, highest percent. Now, I actually don't think I drank the whole bottle of Everclear because Brandon was there for part of the time. But anyway, he left and I did drink the whole bottle of Bacardi. And that was the only time that I ever got so drunk that I couldn't really walk. I was having to crawl. But as soon as I got up, we were on the front porch. I fell and busted my head on a rock, just blood everywhere. But I didn't even feel it at all. I didn't even have a headache the next day even after I had to go get stitches for it. Within months of this incident, Rhett would rack up two DUIs within 11 days of each other. They were so close together that the legal system treated them both as first offense. And for that, Rhett lost his driving privileges for one year. But he got something far more lasting the day he appeared in court. Sometimes in life you'll get these little synchronicities. You know, just like a wink or whatever. You take it as a sign. Usually it's wise to do so. The guy, well, this is the first time I went to jail. My cellmate, he was only, I only had a cellmate for the first couple of hours I was there. And he went to court that day because it was just like some public indecency charge. He was a homeless guy. And when he came back from court, he told me he was getting released and everything. But then... Of course, we started talking because that's what you do if, if you don't want to be, you know, you're in a cell with somebody, you might as well get to know them a little bit. So he told me, I told him what I was in for, I don't remember who told first, but I think it was me that told him I was in there for DUIs. And he was a veteran, I think a Vietnam veteran, you know, they got, they still get treated horribly by the VA. but. His wife and son were killed by a drunk driver. So, you know. His alcohol abuse led him to dangerous drug addiction as well. In February 2019, Rhett had just gotten his driver's license back from a year's probation he had received for his first two DUIs and was headed to a night class at a local community college. But this time, it wasn't, I wasn't, drinking at all. I was going to school, actually. I was going to my night class, computer applications class at JD. And on the way there, I had been awake for like four days um, on meth. So it was a sleep deprivation, definitely, this time that got me. So at one point, I swerved toward the line, just real quick, because I just, I kind of zoned out, or like, I guess I fell asleep for a minute, I don't know, anyway, but I didn't go over the line, I just kind of got closer to it, and I I guess somebody called because of that, because when I got, when I got to the campus, 
the campus police pull up behind me. And at, at this point, I don't know, you know, what's going on. I didn't put two and two together. Then the Gulfport police show up in force like they always love to. Um, and But the guy who was in charge, I guess the sergeant, he was actually, I, I mean, I kind of liked him. He was okay. He was a nice guy, probably because I was cooperative. And he put me through field sobriety tests. I passed him twice. And I blew 0, 0.00 both times uh, on the breathalyzer. And so then they took me to Memorial to get a blood test because I agreed to it because I felt like if I didn't, they were going to search my car and I would have had three more felonies. This third offense would be a felony DUI. And while Rhett is optimistic about his own future, he really isn't about people changing their ways when it comes to this issue. He says there's little hope to save people from themselves because they already know the dangers. People are going to do what they're going to do, and that's why we have the justice system, because people break the law. There's no solution, unfortunately. Some of these, you know, it can be reduced, but a lot of these problems are intractable. It's part of the human condition. I don't view what I'm saying as negative. I just, that's just the way it is. Every, everybody's addicted basically these days to something. That's pretty much what technology is, what social media is, and what it feeds. But, for example, if somebody's attached to their phone every day, just put it down, and every time you want to pick it up, that's what it feels like. Except with the fact that, you know, the, the drugs also have withdrawals, unlike a phone, but that's just like a little sample of what it's, it's kind of what it's like. So, but addiction, I don't really see it as, it's basically like you're growing a demon in your head, like growing a little devil inside your head. And it's, it's a sub-personality. It's, it's, it's a manifestation of a one-dimensional sub-personality that basically whenever it takes over, it, it overrides everything else you care about. So it doesn't mean you don't necessarily care about anything else. It's just when you have created this little devil in your head, it overrides everything else. In other words, people know the consequences of drinking, drugging, and driving, but they don't care because their brain chemistry has been hijacked by the devil himself. And it hijacks your brain chemistry. Well, whenever you get a hit of dopamine, for instance, it could be from anything, what happens is you strengthen all the synaptic connections that led up to that decision. So it creates an almost automatic behavior pattern because that's what dopamine is supposed to do. It's, it's motivation towards a goal. When you achieve that goal, those neural circuits strengthen. So that's what I mean by you're basically growing a devil in your head. And you could separate somebody from the substance, but that doesn't get rid of the neural networks that you've built up over time. That takes a lot longer. The only change that anybody can hope for doing a podcast like this or anything is convincing maybe one or two people not to. You know, it's possible, you know, if somebody hears this, they won't kill somebody. And that's enough. That's, that's all the change you can hope for. His comments were a downer for me. Like, 
Is that really the way things are? Is it just hubris to think that we, you, I, any of us, trying to move the needle toward the good just a bit, is that what little control we really have? And in that moment, an overwhelming rush of clarity or the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it, something spoke to me. Each of us reaching a person or two isn't small at all. It impacts the world forever. The veteran in the cell that day who crossed paths with Rhett for a brief moment in time and shared the impact of drunk driving on his family, the loss of his wife and child, Rhett had never forgotten it. Even in the midst of his continued struggles with alcohol and drugs, that veteran's story kept gnawing at him, warring with the devil in his brain. Honestly, the, the, the only surefire, time-tested cure for addiction is spiritual transformation. And anybody will tell you that. It's all, all the research says that. It doesn't matter really what kind of spiritual transformation, just of some kind. You have to have higher order goals that can override those circuits and repair your brain. Overcoming the monster that is addiction to alcohol and or drugs is no small feat. Those trying to right their wrongs deserve our support and our encouragement rather than our judgment. No one sets out to be an alcoholic, an addict, a felon. We may never know how our words impact others, but they may very well change someone's worlds. I am indebted to all of you who have shared your stories with me this past year. You are changing the world every time you share your story and those of your loved ones. And I thank God for those placed in the path of my son, especially the veteran who shared his great loss with my son that day. Yes, I said son. In case you hadn't realized by now, Rhett is my firstborn son. So this podcast is pretty personal to me as well. He has been clean and sober for the better part of two years. But sobriety, I have learned, is a daily choice. And some of those days are hard. Addicts need Jesus, just like the rest of us. But they also need a strong, firm, and loving support system. They don't need enablers, whether by commission or omission. Join me next time for episode 5. We will go back to the deadliest DUI crash in American history, and I'll talk to some of those impacted and how their lives and loss have changed since that May day in 1988. Thank you to Louisiana Christian University for partial funding of this project.